Well, if you've known me for very long, you probably will realize that I'm, uh, my personality tends to lend me towards the open, towards the, uh, I guess you would say the gray, through the probable. How is that? In fact, when I was in youth ministry, I was the uh, youth pastor down the street, and I had a bunch of friends who were part of it, and they were youth leaders, and so we'd hang out, and after Wednesday nights, they'd be like, hey, we're going to go do this till one o'clock or whatever. Hey, come with me, come join me, or let's, let's all hang out. My answer was always pretty much the same. Sure, maybe, or probably. And uh, eventually my friend Cody leaned over to the other guys and said, you know, when he says that he means no. And that was kind of how it, how it started when I realized, oh, I have an issue with being, uh, you know, certain about my timetables and my dates. In fact, when I got my first assistant here at the church who was helping with my calendar, she came up to me and she says, you are the worst person I've ever met with a calendar in my life. And it's because if I look at a calendar, there's so many options, so many opportunities, so much possibility, so much probability about what might show up. I have a hard time writing things down in a calendar because it probably might happen, but it might not happen. Anybody there with me? Anybody you like kind of feel that way? Okay. We live in a world of probability. I'm sorry, all you black and white people, you're wrong. There's lots of gray. You know, it's a, we live in a probable world. We live in a world filled with probability. And maybe you don't think about probability. I mean, I doubt we're sitting around calculating the probabilities of things. I get it. But you know what? I know you feel probability. Our world is a world of probability, so much so that the two main feelings many people feel are the feelings of probability, and those are fear and anxiety. Think about it. You fear what might happen. You don't know for certain it will happen. You fear what is probable. You're anxious about what could happen, what probably could happen. Somebody could drill you down. You say, well, I don't know, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. And this is the reality of our world we live in. When we feel fear, when we feel anxiety, we're living in the world of the probable. And maybe you're like, nah, not me. I don't live that way. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you're out in the middle of the ocean in the deep part, you know, where it's above your head and you can't touch the ground? Anybody ever been out in there? Uh, That far, right, right, okay. When you go out and some of you are like, no way I don't go out there. And I know why you don't go out there. Jaws, that's why you don't go out there. Or, or maybe you've watched, you know, Soul Surfer and you're like, that's why you don't go out there because there are sharks and sharks eat people and sharks eat arms. At least they eat arms of people. And we get into this fear because there's a probability I might die of a shark attack. There's something out there that will kill me. It is spooky, weird, and awful. And here's the thing that's funny. If you thought about the probability of you being eaten by a shark, you wouldn't be scared. But we don't think about the probabilities. We feel what we think is probable. Because guess what? Given all the human beings in the United States, put it on average, you're more likely to not be killed by a shark. You're more likely to be killed by Bambi. Seriously, 300 times more likely you are to be killed by a deer than you are a shark. Now, it depends on if you're swimming in the ocean or you're driving through Pennsylvania woods. But the bottom line is that that we don't live our lives freaked out. Bambi might jump out of the woods and hit my car and I die. Because we don't think in the probabilities. We feel what we think are probabilities. And you and I have just lived through an entire year of being worried and anxious about probabilities. I'm, I probably will get COVID and I'm probably at the age I'm going to die and I'm probably going to need to do this. I'm probably, and this is, nobody's certain about anything right now because the probabilities are so great and the fear and anxiety in the United States is shot through the roof because we're not certain about anything. It is probable, 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 probable. You know, it's probable you'll die on your, in a car ride. It's probable you'll die of skin cancer because you don't use enough sunscreen. It's probable we'll all get diabetes. I've seen how we eat the pancakes outside. I mean, this is probable. 
But look, we don't live in the probability in those zones. We, we feel them, but we don't think about them. And I think this is, this is why Jesus so quickly runs when we're in the anxiety phase, the fear phase, and tells us, listen, slow down and think through this. He, he puts an entire section in what you and I would know as the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 6 of the book of Matthew, in verse 25, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I mean, Jesus is so clear. He's like, look, you don't know the probabilities, but guess what? When you're in that state of anxiety, when you're in the state of fear, when you don't understand what's going on, and it could be bad, it could be this, it could be that. He says, stop and realize who's in control. Who's in control? God's in control. He says, stop and realize God is in control. And we, as Christians, we take a collective sigh of relief until I mention one word, science. I believe the one thing that causes Christians more anxiety when it comes to science is the idea that science is showing us that God's not in control. And that that becomes something that leads the probable reality around us very dangerous. And what is in control? And maybe it's technology, maybe it's conspiracy, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And when God is not in control because science has shown God's not in control, man, we as Christians, we just go, I don't don't need to know the science. I I don't need to know it. And I'll be honest, I, I believe the, one of the situations is when it comes to science and God, we don't want to think about the probabilities. And, and in this series, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about science and God. And some of you guys are getting anxious. Some of you guys are getting freaked out because we're talking about science and God. And we don't want to think about the probabilities. We feel the probabilities. And to be quite honest, last week, we, we kind of talked about one of those probabilities that God does exist. We brought up this thing called the God Hypothesis, and it's based on a book, and this, this is from a man named Stephen Meyer. He's a philosophy of, um, of science. That's his major, and he's a, a philosopher of science, and he's just done a great job. And all my scientific stuff, I'm going to tell you, is simple, fly, simplified from this. Simplified. Yeah, it's simple. That's simplifying. Simplify, uh, never mind. Anyway, so... It's from this book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. And I would love for you guys, if you want to get into the deep weeds of the science stuff, that's there. The theology is coming from the Bible. So don't, don't, don't mistake. I'm not using his theology. I'm using the biblical theology. But what I want to point to you is the idea that um, you don't have to be scared of the modern sciences. Now, you, you may be somebody who holds to a younger science stuff and you're into that awesome, good. I, I'm just showing you, you don't have to be scared of even the major movements of science. Last week, we saw that the Big Bang actually points to the beginning of time time and space. And the only hypothesis out there that said that was true was your Bible. And that that gave you the probability that, hey, maybe God's a little bit more probably real than I thought he was. You know, he's probably more existent because if the Bible says there's a beginning and we find a beginning to the space-time reality around us, and they weren't even looking for it, they didn't want it, man, that, that increases the probability. Now, here's the situation. We wonder, though, there's got to be more to this. And I don't think any side of this conversation really likes to look 
at the probability. Once, I don't think us Christians like to look at the probability in science because we begin to look at a big bucket like this. This is about 150 ping pong slash golf balls in it. And it's, they're all in there. And I've got only two orange balls. And so if you think about it this way, the orange balls to, to some of us in the faith are what we feel like is the only evidence of God. And that if I studied science, all these white balls would fill it up and would make the chance that God exists so much smaller. If I really started studying it, I'd discover, oh my gosh, it's a risky business. It would be a gamble to find out that God exists. And we think all these white balls would be evidence against it. And if you're a kind of a naturalist, you're somebody who's a, who don't, doesn't believe in God or materialist, maybe scientifically minded, you're kind of thinking, yeah, 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 you know, I, I agree with you, Greg. Those are all points away from God. And the orange ball, that, that yeah, maybe there's a God, but it's a pretty small chance. And yet I would say that you're scared of looking at the probabilities just as much as we are. Because if you really followed them and really began to examine what was said, you might discover that all these white balls are evidence for the existence of God and your chance that he doesn't exist is pretty darn small. And if that's the case, then you're going to have to face the fact that there might be a God who's over your life and telling you how to live and over your friends' lives and everybody else and suddenly you have to be a moral person who lives according to the code of a God who made you. That's, you can't rule yourself. That, that, gets, that gets a lot of anxiety going. And so I think both sides have an issue when we examine the question of whether or not God exists and looking at God and science. Now, the God hypothesis then steps in with this question. What should we expect? We talked about last week, the fact that when you make a hypothesis, it sets up a set of expectations. And when you go look at the evidence, it will either make your hypothesis right or wrong, depending on what you find. And so the hypothesis that's laid out this week, last week was there's a beginning and that's what we discovered. This week, the God hypothesis really states that God's in control. That's what Jesus says. And that's what the scriptures indicate in all kinds of places. I'll give you one of them. It's in Job. Um, Job is this guy, you can find him in the middle of the Bible. And he's uh, basically had just a horrible situation. Apparently God and the devil made a, made a, had a conversation. God goes, fine. Uh, Satan, go ahead and mess up Job's life. And um, Job's got his life just messed up and he's upset. He's bitter. He's got horrible counselors. And in the end, God shows up to him. And in the confrontation between Job and God, God starts unloading what we would call scientific questions, questions of, of knowledge and wisdom about the universe. One of them is this. He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Now, how many guys love to look up at the stars at night? Anybody who enjoy that? Those of you who don't look up, tonight's a great night to do so. It's nice and clear and warm. And what you'll find is that there are times where you have those three little dots in a row. That's Orion's belt. And if you follow it to the right, there's this very bright cluster of stars called the Seven Sisters. We know them as the Pleiades. And that is what it's talking about. It's talking about these constellations in the sky. And, and so God's asking Job, can you bind them together? Can you make this cl star cluster stay close together? Can you keep Orion's belt, you know, where it is? Can you lead forth Maseroth? You're like, who in the world is that? That's Leo the lion, most likely. And he's usually on your, he'll be down there on the, uh, the horizon. He says, can you guide the bear, which we would know as um, the one up north from the North Star can, with its children? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? The answer for Job is, what? No, obviously not. But the answer for God is, yes, this is what I do. I have control over the constellations, control over the solar systems, control over the planetary systems. I have control over the universe. In fact, we believe he just 
Not only that, he has control of the, of, the, of the solar systems and the universe, we believe he has control of everything on earth in a sense. He, in Psalm 147, uh, the, the psalmist is celebrating God. He says, he, meaning God, covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth and the grass, and he makes the grass grow on the hills. And what we get here is this picture that he gives the, to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. This is what Jesus is riffing off of. Jesus is saying, look, God has control of all this stuff. So listen up, trust that he's got this. In a world of anxiety and fear and probabilities, God has control. Well, the scientific or the material hypothesis would actually say, no, 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 God's not in control. Rather, natural processes are in control. And so if we were to look into the world, what do we find as an expectation? And so we dove in with science, we begin to examine things, and what do we find? Well, the evidence actually is, seems to lead to natural things in control. You dive in, you don't find God's hand moving things. You don't see some spiritual presence show up and an angel shove a rock or move a, move a, a celestial object. We know the laws of physics control the heavens. So much so, you and I probably, some of you anyway, have an app on your phone that tells you where the stars are going to be and what's going on. You could reverse that app and watch the time go in the back and see what the stars look like on the day Jesus was born or on the day that um, you, you know, on when Moses was around. And you'll find out they look pretty much the same. But it's interesting. We can calculate that stuff by all of our astronomical variables and what we've learned from astronomy. I mean, it's the laws of physics. And some of them are pretty simple equations, but when we dive into this stuff, we discover, hey, it's not God pushing the heavens around. It's a natural process. It's a natural process that brings the rain. We call it the weather cycle, the water cycle. You've got evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and then off it goes eroding the earth, right? So you guys remember that from elementary school. These are natural processes. And the grass, we know how it grows. We're so good at it, we produce fertilizers that feed the grass better than the world does. And feeds your animals better than the world does. Your pets are likely to live longer in your home than in the wild. Because we are able to care for them better and do things like that. Because we understand it's a natural process that animals, plants, and the solar system, even the weather, is controlled by. So much so that we can predict a 91 degree day and it'd be pretty close. Now, we're not that good yet, but you know, you know that's the idea. We get close. And so the evidence, when you look at it, begins to make it look a lot like, well, yeah, we got the beginning of the universe, but after that, um, that's a lot of balls that are against us. So what do we do with that? Because if you're a materialist right now, I'm just saying you're feeling pretty good. You're like, yep, figured, low chance of God's existence, except I'm going to press pause on that for a second, because what I did is I set up how the world wants you to, and how a non-Christian would explain our hypothesis. That's not our hypothesis, by the way, guys. Did you know that? We don't claim, oh, just God's got control of everything. Done. Actually, our hypothesis is a little bit more detailed. And while the evidence seems to line up with this materialist idea, our hypothesis is actually not that God's moving it with his hand, it's that he moves it with his word. That God's in control of the universe by his word. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it. It says, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God. After last week, you can even say, hey, by scientific knowledge, we know that the universe was created. We don't even have to have it by faith anymore. That's how far we've come. That's pretty awesome. 
So that, that's our accurate piece. He says, but it's by the word of God. Not, not that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, the word of God, what is this? Like a lot of people are like, oh, you mean the Bible created the universe? No, 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 no. When we talk about the word of God, we speak of God's words. We don't mean like you and what you and I are hearing right now which is the reverberations of molecules in the, in the air that's hitting your eardrum and moving all those little, you know, your eardrum and all that little stuff in your ear so you can hear stuff. Look, you go into space, what do we know? That Star Wars is a fantasy because there's no sound or explosions in space, period. It's a vacuum. There's nothing to reverberate anywhere. It should just go, with not even, it's just so, that's it. It's, there's nothing. So when I'm talking about word, I'm not talking about what you're hearing right now from amplification. I'm talking about when you say hello, when you say good morning in your head to yourself or to somebody else. Ready? Just tell yourself, hi, how are you doing? It's really funny. You just had a conversation with yourself in your head. You actually thought, I'm not going to do that. So there you go. You actually had a conversation with yourself. You had words going off in your head. Those are real words. Neuroscientists can't pinpoint where those words are. They can't make you think of sentences. Regardless of their claims in neuroscience, they are not capable of doing those things. They may see what happens when you think, but your thinking is causing it. You are a being above your own material and your words are beyond the physical. They are actually literally things that are not physical. And that's, that's what these people meant. God, who is not physical, has words. He has thoughts. Those thoughts come out as orders and they transform the world just like yours do. You know what changes the world is your thinking. When you think, follow me, and you speak, you literally are taking what is immaterial, making it material and allowing other people to engage with you. That's what the power of words is. It's the power of actions. It's the power of using thought into production. And God's word is instantaneously powerful in that way. That's what the Hebrews mean. That is what the ancients are saying. That is why the word of God is what's created everything around us. Now, the, so this, the, the God hypothesis would claim when we look at the world, we're going to find that everything is in order by a word or words, by thought by a power that's invisible. The materialist, well, their actual vision is this. There's natural processes, but those natural processes must come from random chance. They just happened. They kind of fell into place and this is what we've got. And that's actually what they claim because that's what they need to claim. There's no ordering principle. There's nothing beyond. It just falls into chance patterns because we know it could be different and we know it doesn't have to be this way. And so there's this interesting thing. We start talking about, about the universe. We can actually begin to examine this expectation. We expect that there would be some kind of word, some kind of thought, something that drives the universe. And they would say, no, we should find it's random. And so here's what's crazy. Talking about the Big Bang last week, we, we, we have scientists who can calculate down into the milliseconds with kind of their calculations or computers and stuff into what was needed for the universe to exist. And when they do these calculations and they dive into the deep science, what they begin to find is that they, we have a universe that has an extreme amount of order. That is strange. Think about it. I've heard a lot of people argue with the Big Bang. They say, the reason it can't be the Big Bang is because when something explodes, it's chaotic. It'd be crashing into each other. You wouldn't get order. You would get absolute insanity. That's right. But that's not what we find in the calculations. You get extremes, extreme amounts of order. 
And it comes from these little things, these little pieces at the beginning of the universe that are necessary for the laws of physics to work. They're called the constants. Now, if you've ever heard of a constant, you know one of them. You've heard of the constant called the speed of light. Everybody's heard of the speed of light. The speed of light has a constant momentum. It doesn't change. In fact, we measure it in a vacuum over a certain meters, 299 million blah, 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 uh, meters per second. And it's like... It's this crazy fast number, but it is a standardized number accepted internationally. The speed of light has a limit and it's called C. That's what they call it. It's a constant. Now, what's interesting about these constants is that they have to be there at the beginning exactly right. How many played with Lego sets? Any Lego set player and people who love Legos? I loved Legos. I was part of, you know, Zach, Zach, he's a Lego maniac. You know, that was my time. And I, I loved that stuff. And so it was cool because all these new Lego sets were coming out when I was younger and now my kids are into it. But one of the things a lot of people don't know about Lego sets, especially if you use a vacuum cleaner, is that uh, there are special pieces in every set that only belong to that set. And if those pieces are lost, you can't rebuild that set. You have to like substitute it for another color or some weird thing from another set, but you can't, you have to have particular pieces that are only for that set. And when your mom vacuums them up, you're doomed. That's how that works, right? Okay. What they find is these constants are like those special pieces in a Lego set. If they're off or missing, you don't have the universe. They call it fine tuning. And it's something that I'm going to let a guy who knows a little bit better than me explain it to you. His name is William Lane Craig. He's a, he's a professor over at Talbot, uh, a philosophy professor, well-known apologist. Yeah, um, and he's, he's done these videos. I'm going to show you half of one of the videos that kind of gives you an idea of what is going on with this thing called fine-tuning and these constants. So go ahead and watch up here. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles. The very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. 
In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. Surprising and unlikely, to say the least. Now, did you catch some of those numbers? They, um, Jay Richards, who's a, a fellow over at the Discovery Institute, he actually argues conservatively that there are 22 constants that are finely tuned. Now, Hugh Ross has mentioned upwards of over 150, I believe, at this point. But the conservative estimate is 22 of these highly tuned, finely little tuned constants, Lego pieces, that have are just slightly, slightly out of balance, they don't work. I mean, let's back up, let's go to that cosmological constant that you saw. Uh, I mentioned, I'd said that that was the one made up by um, Einstein, that, I was wrong, that was the, uh, he, there was an expansion uh, constant that he had thrown in there. The cosmological constant is known today, as you saw, and it has that fine-tuned part of one part, that'd be one orange ball in the midst of 10 to the 120 balls. Now that is, again, larger than all the cells in your body, all the time that's ticked by. That is a one with 120 zeros after it. That is a ridiculously large number that I can't fathom. And neither can you. You think our debt's big. That's a huge issue. Um, and you would have to be able to pluck in one shot, one orange ball from a bucket that held all of those balls in it. And some have, exp some have explained it in the sense of like being able to pull an atom out of the universe randomly and it being the one that was marked and you were blindfolded, right? I and mean, this is extremely, extremely, extremely crazy numbers. And if it's adjusted by just that little bit, there's no life. There's just a black hole universe or a big milk toast universe. And take the other one. The other one that's even crazier is, is that one that you saw at the end, 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. What it's talking about is this idea of entropy. Now, hang on with me. I'll explain what entropy is. A lot of people think entropy is things falling apart. It is, but entropy can have a high entropy or a low entropy. Now, when something has a low entropy, when it means it's very, very organized, it's like my wife in the kitchen when everybody's gone, okay? When she's in the kitchen, everybody's gone, that entropy is so beautiful. It's clean. The surfaces are clean. Every fork and everything is put away. It is precise. Everything is right. It has high organization, right? But that means it's low entropy. It's, it's great. In this flip of this, me and my kids get home after some night. We walk in and we are like a tornado in, a, in, in the middle of, a, of a, you know, a park or a trailer park. That's the word I'm looking for. We're in a tornado and we're just messing the stuff up. Forks are everywhere and things are falling all over the ground. Now you have high entropy. It's a mess. In a universe like ours, we have extremely low entropy. It is a very organized world with galaxies and this kind of stuff. It's more likely you should have a black hole universe, which is a messed up high entropy world. It's just a garbage falling apart world. And so when we see this, Roger Penrose, who made famous because he, he helped, um, what's his, um, 
Stephen Hawking actually become what he, he is a colleague of Stephen Hawking. He gave him his doctorate. What you find is he actually calculated the entropy in our world. And he came to that number. 10, 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. Now, here's, here's how big this number is. It's not a bucket of, of balls. He actually argued, and Stephen Meyer actually displays it this way. He says, listen, to write that number out without using exponents, just a one and zeros, you would have more zeros than there are electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, and everything else in the entire universe. More zeros. You can't write it. It's so big. The chance that this has happened as random has been thrown away. And I know that you, you gotta go like, but we might've gotten lucky. It really could have been lucky. I mean, look, I got 152 balls in here, right? And I, I got two of them. The chances of me actually sitting here, shutting my eyes, shoving my hand in here, reaching around and going like, oh, what do I got? I think I can find the orange one. I think I can find the orange one. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's not gonna happen. Oh, <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, can we edit this? Because that's not going to work. Um, uh, okay, so yeah, it's kind of possible, right? Uh, that's really embarrassing. Um, except that I fixed it because I taped it to the bottom. <laughs> and you probably guessed. Because I had to rig it. I had to rig it. There's no chance I was going to pull this out. Not on the first shot like that. The odds were too big. That was only 101 in 152. And what scientists are saying is the universe is rigged. It can't be by chance. The materialist can't have the natural processes by chance. It's too much. Because every single one of those little constants have to be multiplied together to produce the largest probability that we can't even think of. But you know what? A lot of scientists aren't worried about it. They've said, of course it's rigged. Of course it's rigged. It's rigged by the multiverse. Yes, the multiverse is back. We talked about it last week for a little bit, but the multiverse is the answer many people are giving to this fine-tuning reality. They say it must be finely tuned because we have an infinite amount of universes and we are in the one that it works in because there is a vacuum wave or there is a string theory or an M theory and there's all different kinds out there that enables that one shot and all of that infinity to actually happen and you're living in it. And that's what we would expect in a multiverse. The problem is that the multiverse cannot, like I said, cannot be measured, cannot be proven, cannot be seen. It's unscientific. It's supernatural. And even if it did exist, scientists are now realizing that it would have to be, guess what? Finely tuned. Imagine with me for a minute that this balloon was one of our universes and I attached it to a universe making machine. I had a whole bunch of balloons all over the place and that universe making machine for us would be an air compressor. I would have to finely tune that air compressor to attach appropriately to that universe, expand the universe at that exact moment, stop and reset and go to another one and start another one, all with precision. And they have all these little precise things that have to be true for a multiverse to exist, in the, even in the math. And so you can't escape that it, the situation of an actual fine-tuned world, even in a multiverse. Now, the real problem in a multiverse is this, though, is that ultimately, you lose all of science. 
Say what? Yes. If you know someone who's arguing for a multiverse, they have just abandoned all ability to do scientific endeavors. Say why? Because they have no guarantee in a, in a multiverse that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Did you know that? Why would they have any reason to believe the laws of physics are going to stay the same in a multiverse? This just might be the universe that tomorrow everything stops. And there are an infinite amount. It's far more likely we are in a universe where scientific stuff just falls apart than the one that it always stays together. It's a faith principle. It's a religious principle. It is not science. And what happens is when you include the multiverse, you destroy scientific investigation because there's no reason there should be any order anywhere and that it should stay. As Christians, the interesting thing is that we can engage science and should engage science because we have the God who made the world by his order, his word, by the word of the Lord, by the order of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. See, the guy at hypothesis expects order to last. It doesn't expect it to change because God's word doesn't change. You see, when God pronounces for something to happen, he will happen until he's done with it. Notice how the scriptures put it in. This is a crazy one in Hebrews chapter one. Many times we see this, but we read right over this section. It says he talking about Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint in his nature. That's Trinitarian stuff. That's where everybody gets involved. But I go to this and he maintains or upholds. He keeps the universe together by the powerful word, by his word of his command, the power is there in his word. A constant, a word that doesn't change. It's, wait, constant from the beginning to now. That's what we call a constant. Though you just looked at. That maintains the entire universe. Guys, these guys are pre-scientific. Pre-physics. This is only new within the last 20 to 30 years. And what we're looking at suddenly is this declaration that God created everything by a word that's so constant and firm that when he speaks it, it will not return void. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I pur- which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. His word is purposeful, will act in where it will and how it will as he determined it will and it won't stop. In fact, he goes on, it says, while the earth remains, here's a promise, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the God hypothesis says, order won't end because God's promised it won't end. And because we know there will be night and day, you'll be day and day and night and night and all these nice order, you can do science. Back to last week's verse in Psalm 19. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The orderliness of the universe is what gives you the information so you can do the scientific venture. The only reason we can expect order is not a multiverse, is not a randomness in a universe, is because there is a God who ordered it with his word. And so when you want to look at the probabilities, my friends, it starts to look awfully weird that every single white ball in here is pointing directly back to the existence of God, the necessity of God's word and order from a beginning point. And that if there's no God, it's a pretty small chance that he doesn't exist.
What's even more interesting is that we've seen and written down much of this, quote, word that God spoke. We call them the laws of physics. Those aren't natural processes. Why do they exist? What you're looking at is actually the known physical laws right there on a, on a one chart. How, how do you do that? You would expect the, the physical laws of our universe to be complex and crazy and weird, but they're simple. They're beautiful. Also, what's weird about these is they're omnipresent. They're in every part of the universe. They, they don't just happen here on earth. They happen on every planet and every part, everywhere you go. And they're omnipotent. You can't break them anywhere in the universe because they are the laws of the universe. And when you begin to examine them in those terms, you know what? That's not the terms that science thinks of. They know that's true. Those are, those are terms that we argued years ago as theologians for what is called the word of God. You can look it up in theology books, pre all this scientific venture, and those are what the word of God are called. The omnipotent, all-powerful laws of the universe. That's the word of God. What you're seeing is man's, man's ascent to God's word, ordering the universe, upholding it by the word of his power, by his command. Every scientific venture is geared and sits and based upon the order of a universe in which God said, I'm not just controlling it with my hand, I'm controlling it with my words. And you're looking at the words and you're seeing the constantness of them. You don't have to worry and fear. Yes, you live in a world of probability. But you can relax and trust that God has control. Because his existence is highly Highly, highly probable. Way more than one out of 150. It's flipped. And what I want you guys to hear today is, yes, this is a world of anxiety. And the more we erase the belief that God is in control of things, the more you will lean into the substances, the more you will run to the technologies, the more you will fear the sciences, and the more we will give away the aspects that point to God's glory because we don't think the probabilities, we fear them. There's no need to fear. There's no need to be anxious. Our God is in control. But Greg, but Greg, isn't it, a, isn't it just all a computer simulation? I mean, Mr. Tesla told me that, right? Like, what's going on? Elon Musk says it's a computer simulation. I know, I know, I know. My son came up to me with that the other day. He's like, Dad, how do we know it's not a computer simulation? I mean, everything seems to be so put together. I said, son, it doesn't really matter if it's a computer simulation or not. He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, think about it. Some super beings were in their little computer simulation somewhere out there. Okay. Who, how do we not know they're not in a simulation? And then who's the guy over them? and got them in their simulation. And, and eventually we go, we go, look, eventually there's one guy who started all the simulations. Don't you agree? And he's not in a simulation. He's the one above the reality of all those simulations. And then that one, that's called God. That's who we worship. No matter how many simulations are between him and us. It starts somewhere. And the God of the universe who we love made the original universe we all sit in. And these are all attempts to avoid God. And I get it. Some people are like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If God exists, there shouldn't be disorder. It would all be perfect. You would have brokenness. And I know. 
The reason we have brokenness, I, I love it. Um, one of the theologians I read named John Frame put it this way. The reason you have so much brokenness in our universe, so much brokenness in our world, so many hurricanes and earthquakes to kill off human beings is because as long as we continue to rebel against our master, that which has been put under us will rebel against us. We were made to be caretakers of the earth. We were made to be the masters of this earth and this universe, but we rejected our Lord and our master in our sin, in our self-taking, in our self-rebellion, where we said, I want to rule, I'm going to take it. It's all me and I got this. And so you said, I will take care of the probabilities. I'll chart my own course. And in that rebellion, we cause chaos. We call it sin in the church which is a powerful term that we've lost in our culture, but it's really just self-taking. Telling everybody how we want them to live so that I can live comfortably. Telling everybody what they need to do so that I can be okay with myself. Self-taking is about me and selfishness, self-taking, self-conceit is what our culture's all about. And whether you want to sit on, rule your own life and direct yourself, that's the rebellion that causes the mess. And God knew it. And this highly probable God that exists is going to hold us to an account for how we live the life he gave us one day. And that may cause you anxiety. And you think, well, I'm going to control it. I'm going to be the best person I can. You're not good enough. We're a mess. We're a wreck. We are a walking disaster area. Amen. It's no wonder that that God who was compassionate and loving and made us didn't want to destroy us. He came to earth as Jesus Christ. The creator God put himself in his creation and walked on this earth and then bore our rebellion, bore our sin and the punishment that goes with it that will be meted out on that day of judgment. And he said, I will forgive you. Let's make an exchange. You give me all your mess, your rebellion, your sin, and I'll give you all of my life. I will give you all of my righteousness and I'll give you all my goodness. Let's make the exchange. We go, well, prove you're going to do it. He says, fine, I'll come back to life after I've died. And that's what he did. He was crucified on a cross, rose from the dead. The creator God bringing one person back to life doesn't sound like that big of a feat when you put it in terms of creation, does it? And yet that miracle was done to get our attention so that we would know that he has given this exchange to all human beings if they would receive it. And he says, come to me. You don't clean yourself up. Give me your mess. I'll give you my righteousness. I bore it on the cross. And he asks you this, this, will you humble yourself, receive it and trust me? It's a high probability he's telling you the truth. Almost to a certainty. I would say a certainty. And today, it's just a matter of receiving what God has done on your behalf. Bow your heads with me. At home, even outside. I want to give you guys a chance that maybe what you need right now is to humbly receive that gift from God through Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, right where you're at, just turn to God and tell him. He can hear you. He knows. Say, God in heaven, I know I've been in rebellion against you. I'm trying to rule my own life. And I have sinned. I'm turning to your promise that Jesus took my sin and you've given me his righteousness, that he's done it all. I trust you've forgiven me. 
I trust that you're giving me new life. Will you now come into my life? Will you lead me? Will you order the disorder? I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If that was you today, we want to, first of all, just welcome you into the family. Everyone here who calls themselves Christians have had to humble themselves and receive that at some point. And um, we would love to hear from you. We would love to connect with you to help you begin to grow. This is only a starting space. There's so much to know about God and what he has done. And uh, we want to help you uh, learn more and ask your questions and dive in. Um, And so let us know. There are cards in the seats you can do that with. If you're at home, you can just text the number that you're seeing there on the screen. um, Or if you're outside, you can go up to somebody in our prayer team or use the cards out there. And we want to just help you begin this journey. There are no bad questions We want to engage with the questions. We're not afraid of them. And it's because we believe it's only going to lead you deeper into the knowledge of the God who created you and his work through Jesus Christ. And so we want to encourage you to come on out, find out more. Otherwise, guys, I pray that you would rest in this fearful time in the knowledge that our God has got the control since the beginning. Amen? God bless you guys. Danny is going to take us on out of here. Thanks, man. Well, church, I just have a couple of quick announcements for us before we leave. One is, if you're hungry, we've got pancakes out front. So uh, the youth is doing a, a fundraiser for winter camp. So if you guys want to help participate in that, you could give a donation or you can actually eat some pancakes if you'd like. So they're out there readily cooking those O's for you. So if you want to go and do that. You know, here's something that we haven't done, which is really an interesting new way. It's a challenge. It's called Giving Tuesday Challenge, which happens November 30th. What it is, is it's an opportunity for you to give in a lot of different ways. And what do we do? So if you go to our website, which is obcc.church, and right on there, you're going to see a little link to that. And you can look at that. And there are ways that you can participate in this global experience of giving. Because what it tells us is that we, it's better to give than to receive, right? That's what Jesus tells us. So something you guys put on your calendar for November 30th. Uh, secondly, as you can see, the shoe boxes here, right? The shoe boxes, they are uh, coming in next week as our last week. So if you guys have not gotten your shoe boxes in, go ahead and grab some at the courtyard and also bring it back tomorrow, uh, tomorrow uh, by, by next Sunday. Uh, that way you guys can participate in that as well. And by the way, we do go to the facility. So if you guys are interested in wanting to do that, that'll be on the website as well, where you can connect and actually go and participate, packing these boxes and putting them away and shipping them out to those, those millions of kids across the world. How cool is that? Last but not least is we have a, uh, a thing called a giving tree. We do this every year. What it is is where the church uh, buys gift cards for those that are, are less fortunate. So if you have a need where you'd love to uh, have us help you participate in that, where you can um, gain those funds to buy presents and things like that for Christmas. Um, If you would just go to the courtyard and talk to Brent or text TREE, T-R-E-E, at 951-382-5111, and that'll allow us, uh, we're going to be collecting those in the next month so that we can then participate in that uh, next month. So other than that, if you don't mind, I just want to, Pray a quick blessing over you. So if you guys want to bow your heads real quick. May the Lord keep you. May his face shine upon you and may give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Guys, take care.